Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 28 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. We recently published my new guide to computer security, the four-step computer security upgrade, and Andrew Cubasso of JurisPage said about it, check out this guide and secure your damn computers, which is my favorite comment anybody's made about it so far. Find out more and get the guide at lawyerist.com slash guides. It's 20 bucks, but if you use the code podcast to get a 50% discount, um, all you have to do is enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionist. Once again, they've just been great supporters. And if you aren't already a customer, you really ought to give it a try. Having somebody like Ruby answering your phones is going to make you look good. And I think it'll be one of the best things you do for your practice. And you can sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. All right, Sam. So there was an article on the Wall Street Journal law blog uh, the other day. Um, about one of the greatest things to ever happen in the history of legal marketing. That is a bold statement. Yeah, uh, which is uh, there's a toddler in, I think, Louisiana um, who's obsessed with a personal injury lawyer because of his TV ads um, and so requested that for his uh, birthday that they throw him a personal injury lawyer Morris Bart-themed birthday party for a toddler, and he loved it. He had a autographed photo of this personal injury lawyer. He had a photo cake of this personal injury lawyer. He had a cardboard <laughs> cutout of this personal injury lawyer. And Oh, it's totally ridiculous. It is one of the most amazing things to ever come out of a late-night lawyer TV commercial. Uh, have you watched the videos? No. Of his commercials, I have I haven't actually either actually, but apparently they're so uh, the jingle is so uh, it's such an earworm that the the kid is just all about it. I, it cracks me up. I don't even know. But here's my question: Why didn't the lawyer go to the birthday party? It's terrible, right? Like that would be such good PR. He he could put <laughs> that in his next commercial. Uh-huh. You could get a ton of mileage out of that. It's hilarious. No, I mean, I have to admit, like growing up in the '80s, watching lots of broadcast TV, I saw lots of bankruptcy and personal injury lawyer ads, and these people were celebrities in my mind too. I one eight hundred win win one. I think that's Woods and Thompson, <laughs> which was the the big personal injury lawyer advertiser when I was growing up. <laughs> yep. So I, I really like. I'm mostly proud of this kid. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's super awesome. Uh, I have something a little bit different. Okay. Um, the the DC Circuit is doing something to combat link rot in its opinions. What if, is link rot? Yeah, link rot is um, a, one way of describing what happens when the court includes a link to something in its opinion and then that page goes away. Because, of course, the court doesn't control the thing that it is directing it to. So... 
unlikely with Wikipedia, but very likely when it's linking to private blogs and things like that or um, random, whatever websites it may be linking to. So, you know, it's it, the problem is it's referring to this material and now you can't see on what the court was basing its decision, at least in part. And so that's a problem and we call it link rot. And so what they're doing is, according to the National Law Journal, is they will archive the contents of websites that judges link to and make those documents available on the public docket online. I assume that means PACER. Okay, so I have two questions about this. Yeah. Well, first I should say like the concept of combating this in an internet age where newspapers go down and blogs go away and things that like the problem makes sense to me is the solution that they're not going to cite the original but instead just link to their copy of it i'm, I'm not sure it says that they from actually, a court order it says that they actually archive those um websites already um but yeah i don't i don't know if they're just going to make it easily publicly available or not um, it, it does say in the article that it may limit public access to copyrighted materials. Uh, a lot of the stuff is obviously going to be um, have Creative Commons licenses or be in the public domain, Wikipedia, for example, um, which gets a lot of links. So that, that was my second question is like the copyright problems here just seem enormous because Wikipedia and Creative Commons are not the things being cited. It's law journals and law blogs and newspaper articles, all of which are copyrighted. And if you take a screenshot of that or copy the HTML code and put it on your court server, that's a copyright violation. Yeah, although I think it's pretty unlikely that, as a practical matter, that anybody's going to go around reading things in in huge volume on the Pacer. But Google might. Google can't get into Pacer. At the moment. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's Pacer is so darn clunky that it's hard to imagine anybody losing more than a few pennies a year from from this. So it's not it's not that it's not a real problem, but it's probably not much of one. And peop- and the copyright holders may just shrug and not worry too much about it, except for that one lawyer and you know who's going to make a big deal out of it and take it all the way to the Supreme Court or something. Your idea that the federal appellate court can violate federal copyright law and it's not a big deal because it's only going to cost a few pennies does not seem to me to be the way that federal law works. <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> Apparently, the Fifth Circuit is already doing something similar, although it's maybe not uh, making them public. It's uh, it's interesting. It's, it's the only... I can't think of a better way to do it um, except that maybe what they do is come up with a way to figure out when the page has actually disappeared and then make the materials available instead of just making them available all the time. Because then you've got the argument that this is fair use in some way because they're preserving information that has disappeared. Okay. I'm I'm really skeptical of this one, but I guess we'll wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, well, the, I, I think the takeaway is, yay, the courts are finally doing something about this, which actually is a big problem. So today I am going to be talking about virtual law practice, what that even means, and how to do it with Nicole Braddock. Hi, I'm Nicole Braddock. I'm Chief Strategy Officer at Curo Legal, um, a former attorney, um, 
turned uh, business of law person. Um, and Curo, we focus on sort of the intersection of the legal profession, the business of law, and technology. Um, and we offer a, um, consulting services and then a range of sort of staffing um alternative staffing services for law firms with a real focus on creating operational efficiencies in law firms. Okay, so I've known you for a few years now, and I've known your partner, Chad Burton, for a few years now, and you guys do cool stuff, but you, you always say what Curaligo does, and, I'm a, and I try to like put it into a package that I can get my head around better. <laughs> it's like, is it like back office solutions for law firms, basically, or... Yeah, I mean, our goal is really to put to our focus is entirely on making law firms more efficient operations. So that's through um, technology and operations consulting. You know, we'll d- help develop workflow and processes and that sort of thing for law firms, um, recommending um, more efficient software and policies and procedures on how to use it. So it's, you know, you get your maximum efficiency. Um, and then we have the staffing arm, which is, you know, focused on. Um, letting firms be more agile in their um, resources. So like a lawyer just came to me the other day and she wanted to know, you know, what kind of practice management software should I use and how do I get set up with it? And like you could do that. Yeah. So we do both the consulting and then the implementation. Or somebody could come to you and they're like, I want to go paperless and I have no idea how to do that. And you'll take care of that. Exactly right. Or they might come to you and say, I want to automate my document assembly process and start delivering these services to clients this way, and I have no idea where to start or start uh, putting those systems together or outsourcing that work. And you could take care of all that stuff too. We can do it all. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm, I guess I've just decided to refer somebody to you at least. So. <laughs> well, fantastic. So we're going to talk today about virtual law practice, which is one of the things that you guys are able to help firms with. And I... I mean, the word's been floating out there for a while. We've had writers talk about it on Lawyerist, and I'm still kind of in the dark about what the whole virtual thing is. So what makes a firm virtual? What is a virtual law practice? Um, okay, so to start, it's 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 okay that you're confused because it's a really dumb name for <laughs> to describe this concept. Um, so so, and I think people define it in two different ways. Um, and I, I think it's generally referred to as like a virtual law office if you are providing all of your services online. So your clients come to you through a client portal and their documents are shared online and, and you're delivering the services um, via the internet. Um, it's often, you know, an unbundled, like unbundled solutions, that sort of thing. That to me um, is, that's not how, how I, that's not the do, type do of- Do people thing. do that? I mean- People do that. It's not super common. I think okay. I, I think there was anticipation that that might be um, that might be a growing area, but I haven't seen a lot of movement there. Um, we where we see the most movement, and where we work with a lot of firms, is in really just creating highly efficient, low overhead firms. Um, so by virtual, all we mean is there's there's no the, like the, the attorneys don't show up to a brick and mortar office every day. Gotcha. Uh, sort of like how we run lawyers. Everybody's remote. Nobody ever sees each other. That's exactly right. And it could be one guy working from home, or it can be you know we work with firm up to you know fifty five, sixty lawyers um, where they're all distributed. Um, and sometimes they'll have like a flex office space. Um, so that they can be there for client meetings or for, you know, for firm meetings, but by and large, everybody's working from home. And, you know, the end result there is when you have, you know, optimal operational efficiency, 
it allows you to reduce rates and, you know, so clients are generally pretty responsive um, to, to the virtual firm model. So it's more a question of leveraging technology uh, than it is to uh, for administrative purposes or for serving delivering services to clients than it is like you're not a fake firm because it sounds like a fake <laughs> firm. <laughs> it really does sound like a fake firm. Um, I wish that there was a better word for it. Um, and so, you know, like I, most of these firms are run as traditional law firms just without the overhead, without the fancy office space. Right. Um, some are not. Some operate in a, in a more sort of corporate structure where there's a um, there are owners of this business who are lawyers and they hire lawyers to work remotely who are all independent contractors. Right. Um, so they're not people who are expecting, there's no expectation of partnership. There's no like pyramid structure. Um, it's more hub and spoke type structure. Um, it gives you some flexibility there. Um, and it, and sort of scalability becomes a lot easier when you don't have to worry about physical space as well. Yeah. So it, is there any particular kind of practice area that's really well suited to a virtual law office? We see it across the board. Uh, we've seen a lot of success with, uh, cl- for, with firms that serve corporate legal departments um, particularly because, you know, GCs are more and more really concerned with tightening their belts and, and getting their firms to um, bill less or work on alternative fees. And, and there's, you know, in some ways, the virtual firm allows for more flexibility in, in fee structures. Um, but, you know, we see it across the board. Uh, it really, it's any practice area where your client doesn't give a damn where you are or where a lot of your work is on client site. So, you know, that's, that's a good example for corporate legal work. You know, GCs don't often come rolling into their, their firm's offices. Um, you know, there are some practices, like the one I often throw out is like estate planning, where people, you know, small town estate planning, where people want to come and see the lawyer and sit down with them and work through stuff. You know, it's, I think it all really has to be client-focused. Everything about the structure of a firm has to be focused on the type of clients you plan to serve and what their expectations are for that service. Um, you know, you have to offer the minimum service level that will keep your clients happy. Is, is how I generally look at it. And so do we think like, there's like a growing, you know, mass of clients that are more interested in not seeing their lawyer, but still getting the legal services? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. Um, I think that's true. I think that the population of clients, particularly in the corporate legal world who don't care where their lawyers are is, is certainly on the rise. Um, I think that that's definitely the case on the sort of the more consumer level. I, you know, I think there's, there's, room for growth there. And I think, um, you know, thinking about, you know, more small town stuff, they, they want to go, you know, client consumers want to often want to go in and talk to their lawyers. But, um, I mean, it's funny cause you know, my wife and I are, uh, we're about five years, seven years overdue for our own estate plan. And most of that is because I don't want to go through the hassle of meeting with an estate planning lawyer. Well, there's that too. Yeah. I w- if I, if I could just deal with one over the web, I would have had it done a long time ago. And actually, I think that's estate planning is one of the areas where I've seen the sort of virtual law office model where people are delivering services over the internet. Um, estate planning seems to work well for that because it really becomes an exchange of documents um, and uh, a lot less sort of back and forth. And, and, you know, oftentimes like they're chatting with them, they're, you know, there's other ways of, of communicating, of course, besides in person. Um, but 
I, I think estate planning is one area that sort of suits itself for the actual virtual delivery of legal services. I mean, if you're not going to have an office, how do you talk to your, how do you communicate with your clients? Is it phone-based or Skype or, you know, chat rooms? What do you do? Yeah, both. I mean, I would say, I mean, Skype and phone and email and, um, client, like visiting a client on site. Um, if you have a flex office space, it's, you know, meeting with the client there when you need to. Hmm. Um, but this is not like given modern communications, this, it's not a, a big barrier. Again, I suppose not, you know, as a friend of mine is, who's a financial planner, uh, was telling me that he meets with a lot of his clients on Skype or FaceTime or whatever. And, and I immediately assumed, Oh, I suppose all, all of your younger clients. And he was like, actually it's all the older clients because anyone who is a grandparent is good at Skype and FaceTime because they want to keep up with their grandkids. Yep. And so you're right. Like video chat is no big deal anymore. Everybody is able to do it. Except lawyers. Certainly like younger (laughs) clients tend to not care where their lawyers are. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, like last summer, I think it was, I was working with a virtual firm whose client was a young GC in California. And at that time, the lawyer who was working on the case was vacationing in uh, Germany. Nobody cared. I made it work. Everybody can communicate. Things can get done. Like it just, it matters a lot less now. So what kinds of tools do you need then? Well, so, I mean, of course, if you're running a virtual firm, that means you don't have an office space. That means you don't have an on-premise server, uh, which typically means you're relying on cloud-based software to run the firm. I have yet to encounter a virtual law firm that does not use cloud-based software. I mean, is there like special virtual law office software or are we just actually just sort of assembling tools there is some specially virtual law-based software. I haven't seen anything I love, but if you just think about the practice management software out there, um, you know, Clio, Rocket Matter, my case, those are perfect. Those are perfectly suited for a distributed team. Um, and you know, using Box or Dropbox for document storage on top of that, and you know, Google for Work for your email. I mean, because you need a secure way to communicate and share documents with among your team and with clients, right? Yeah, which is no different from, you know, brick and mortar, but, um, but yeah, so, and there, there's a a million tools that are, um, that are out there that make that productivity and communication effortless. So if you're still stuck in, you know, older desktop based software and you have yet to take advantage of cloud stuff, then you'll probably need to upgrade. But if you're already comfortable with things like Dropbox or Box and, Google Docs and whatever, then you're probably fine. Yeah, I mean, I guess I will only say that if you're a solo, um, then then it, you know you're. I think if you want to have um, be virtual in the sense that you're working from home and don't have an office space, um, I think having you know things on your desktop is is okay. I don't think you get maximum productivity out of it and it and it hurts you for scalability. Um, if you want to add partners, I mean it's it's the easiest thing. If you already have a system set up in the cloud and you add a partner, add some associates, you just add licenses and everybody's happy. They have the tools they need. Uh, so if I were going to start, if I wanted to make my firm have some virtual stuff where do i how do i start thinking about that how do i start thinking like what are the things i how can i take advantage of this the options out there what what can i do and what kind of tools would i need if you want to make your firm have virtual stuff yeah (laughs) yeah exactly okay no but but so but so i'm i'm thinking uh, i'm thinking i want to take advantage of this and i want to you know take advantage of some of the efficiency you've you've talked about i want to get some of these clients who don't want to come to my office like where do i start thinking about that 
So, um, I, you know, I think you, you, you sort of create your business model by first thinking about what clients you're going to serve and, um, and then thinking about what kind and what, what's, what, how, what number of lawyers and sort of what, you know, level of experience and number of lawyers you need to serve those clients. Um, and then you think about sort of business structure and technology. Um, because if it's, if it's just going to be you and only you, you'll have one set of considerations. If you plan to, to grow and scale, um, because that's what your clients will need, you'll have other considerations. Um, but <clears throat> as far as like, let's say, it, let's say I'm solo, but I'm getting frazzled because I've got too much work to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and I'm looking to sort of bring on some, somebody to help me, but I don't want to put them up in an office, something yeah. like that. Um, well, that's when you would hire us for contingent staffing services. <laughs> um, but are you talking about like the technology component? I'm trying to understand your well, question. Well, I, I guess I'm thinking about both because I, I think if I think of the typical uh, lawyer who's going to come up to me at a conference and ask me about this, that's that's roughly how they're going to ask the question. Yeah. Uh, and and so the the question is, I think the I think the first step is probably like you know, where are you trying to find advantages, right? What do you, what is exactly the need that you have? Right. And why do you think technology will solve that problem? Sure. Um, but so let's, let's say technology can solve some of these problems. Like let's say I'm, um, uh, let's say I am frazzled and I'm, and I know that I need help, but I, I can't put anybody up in an office um, and I'm looking to bring on some lawyers. How do I, how do I find those people? Uh, I mean, apart from hiring you, how do you, how do you find somebody who can start doing some work for you? And then how do you yeah. communicate with them and make that make that work when you're not together? Yeah, sure. So I mean that that becomes a staffing strategy question, which um, which is, you know, I think one of the benefits of a virtual firm. Like I said, if you've got if you've got a cloud-based infrastructure, whether you want to add a, a W-2 employee or a 1099 because you don't think the work is gonna is gonna stay. Um, you can create seat licenses for for those individuals, and they can work from anywhere. And it's also sort of hardware agnostic. If they if you're using a PC and they're using a Mac, that's fine, um, and and you can give them autonomy. Um, I think you'll find that it's it's not difficult to locate younger attorneys, and by younger, I mean I'm I'm saying like fifty and under. Um, who are very willing to work in a low overhead environment. Um, people are really valuing, you know, lifestyle and flexibility over big dollars and, you know, prestige of, you know, the mahogany uh, <laughs> and marble. So, uh, like, I think finding people who want to work in that environment is, is not a challenge at all. Um, and, in fact, you know, we're seeing people jump to virtual law firms who have been partners at big law firms for 30 years and they just get tired of all of the politics and the you know the money discussions and they just want you know they want to practice law but they kind of want to do it on their own terms Mm -hmm. um so finding people who want to work in this way is is certainly not a challenge interesting so um we keep saying you you can work from anywhere but um there are some ethics rules about that right uh, talk about that for a minute. What are, where do you need to worry about um, licensing issues and crossing state lines and offices and things? When do yeah. those things come up? 
So there are still some, I, I call them relics on the books in some jurisdictions of the, the bona fide office rule, which really holds to, that in order to practice law in that jurisdiction, you need to have a physical office where you work from. Um, I know that a lot of jurisdictions that held on to it have recently sort of stepped back from it. I think like New Jersey and Pennsylvania are ones that come to mind. Delaware, I believe it's still on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something, you know, you certainly want to check your your local bar opinions on the bona fide office rule if they have one. It's certainly not the norm um, these days, but it's something to be aware of. Um, the other issue is sort of licensing in the jurisdiction where you're practicing. I mean, one of the benefits of a virtual practice is that, you know, um, I love, I live in Maine and I love it here in the summer, but in the winter... Maybe I want to go to Florida, but still practicing. Um, so there's this component of, you know, you can practice in different jurisdictions um, because you're virtual and you can move around. Um, but the thing to note is obviously like where you're primarily located, you need to be, you need to be barred. But then also if you have sort of systematic and continuous business in another state. Um, so if I constantly do work in Massachusetts, even though my virtual office is in uh, is in Maine, I may need to get licensed in Massachusetts. Gotcha. Um, so it goes both ways. You, you can, it depends on who's, which clients you're serving. So you have to turn down clients who aren't from the jurisdiction where you're licensed. But if you're living and working in Boston and serving clients in Maine, you may still have to get licensed in Boston or in Massachusetts. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, I think it really is only for if you're sort of continuously and systematically representing clients there. So I, you know, I'm not saying you have to turn down clients in other jurisdictions, you know, but if, if the bulk of your practice ends up being in a state, then um, no matter where you're located, you probably will need to get barred in that state. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, some of these firms are growing and, and doing these virtual firms are really doing well and they're creating these multi-jurisdictional practices. And so, um, you know, those are the kind of issues that firms like that need to wrestle with. Well, and I I assume if one of the things that you're doing is delivering services online, then you might find that you're getting lots of inquiries from people out of state. I mean, I, when I had my, my consumer law blog was how I got a lot of my business and a ton of the business I got out of that or a ton of inquiries I got were people from all around the country mm-hmm. and I just turned them down. But I suppose if you're getting inquiries from out of state, then maybe one of the first things you do is look for a lawyer in that state. Yeah, sure. That's certainly, I mean, if it's a litigation matter, you can obviously get admitted pro hoc DJ and that sort of thing. I mean, there's, I don't, I don't see it as being a, a tremendous barrier to it, virtual law practice. It seems to me that like that one of the, there's this back office stuff, but part of it is delivering legal services like t- by taking advantage of your web presence, which is, um, you know, maybe there's two ways to do it. You can, uh, you could have very simple forms that are that somebody can show up and sort of like legal, legal Zoom, they can give you their information, fill out a form, and you'll prepare a document and send it back to them for a reduced fee. But it sounds like you're saying the only difference in serving people over the web is um, that they don't come to your office and you have a different way of communicating with them potentially. Um, But you can do completely normal, traditional legal work just without ever sitting down in an office with somebody. That's right. And I I think either model works as well. Because I think people get freaked out by this idea that people are going to be... I mean, are there pitfalls with not 
ever meeting someone? I, I guess I feel like it's important to meet my clients, but maybe it's not as I important mean, as I, I think. I think there there can be. Uh, I think that anytime you engage a client, you want to do a, an assessment of, of that client, of course, um, but that can be done over Skype. It can be done. Um, you know, I, I don't think face-to-face is necessary for you know assessing whether a client is appropriate fit for you. And so would that is... Do you think it's a good idea for people to do an initial meeting over Skype? Yeah, I think so. It seems like uh, I, I read once that something like 70% of our communication happens through body language and facial expressions, and you don't get any of that over the phone. So That's true. Um, I, I can't see you grimacing right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Are there are there other ethics considerations with this? Uh, you know, I think there's probably the general, you know, anytime you're going to adopt software, you should generally think about how it works and whether or not there are any problems with that. But yeah, I, the only other thing I would say is is you know, if you're running a virtual firm, your vast majority are running cloud-based software SaaS platforms, and, and you just need to know what your jurisdiction says about that. And, and at this point, every jurisdiction that's looked at it has said you need to. Um, there's like a re- reasonable care standard, um, but they have different definitions about what that means. So just, you know, just be aware of that and do your due diligence. My general advice on the cloud is stop freaking out about it. Stop freaking out about it. You're already using it. Stuff's not actually in the cloud. It's not floating. And if you think that you don't have due diligence to do about the stuff that is already on your computer, then you're fooling yourselves and you're more dangerous. That's right. And um, that's, that's uh, the sort of reasonable care is I always draw that example of are you really taking reasonable care of your paper files? Are you really taking reasonable care of your emails that you're sending unencrypted? Are you, you know, um, mm-hmm. people need to recognize that there's there's risks no matter how you're running your office and you just need to be diligent about about how you manage your client's information. Do you have, uh, so we, we've agreed that virtual is a dumb word for this. Do you have a just word that you prefer? Word. Um, I like, I like distributed firms, but Mm -hmm. I also think that I think from a consumer perspective, I I don't think that's super helpful either. Um, I think that what clients understand well is that there is competitive differentiation between one firm that is distributed and the firm down the street that has, you know, super fancy overhead and legacy technology, um, who are charging twice what the virtual firm is charging. What about so, mixed firms? Because this is something that I, I read recently about how the, the company Automatic, which is builds the WordPress publishing platform, um, they talked about the importance of committing to either being a distributed company or a local company where everybody comes in the office together because otherwise people feel like they're missing out, right? If, you're, if your internal conversations are happening um, face-to-face between a few people, then those people become like the privileged members of the firm. And then the people who are only on in Slack or over email or whatever are missing out on things. Do you think it, it, that's important at all? Or do you think it can be mixed carefully? I think it can be mixed easily. Um, you know, my company is distributed, but most of our team is in Ohio and they get together all the time. And everybody, I don't think anybody ever feels left out or that there's a culture cultural issue. Culture, culture is something so much more than, um, you know, sitting around together. I think that's an important component. And I think 
virtual firms are wise to have regular, you know, happy hours or lunch and learns, that sort of thing, so that people can, you know, be together. And I think having platforms like Slack, if you're a larger um, firm, sort of a, a private social media, uh, are are really important for for culture. But um, I don't I don't see any issue. And I know a lot of large enterprises are going that way, where they're they're saying we want everybody in house as opposed and, and nobody out, but I think that's a, there's a distinction there between these these giant uh, enterprises and you know small to mid sized law firms. So what are some of the things that you guys do or that you recommend firms do to help make sure that people who are working remotely feel like a part of the team? I mean, so we have um, we have weekly stand ups. And- and, you know, we do them on Hangouts so everybody can see everybody. It's, you know, it's like we're all together. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, some of our teams have more frequent stand-ups. And um, Slack is really, like, Slack is the best tool that we have for culture. And, and Slack, for those who don't know, is basically just um, a, a private um, set of chat rooms that you have. Uh, and we use it for lawyers, too, and we love it. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, and so you can have channels like client related channels where you're talking about you know you're you're, you're solving business problems and, and getting feedback on issues related to work but really our slack ends up by and large being used in like the water cooler sense like people are mm-hmm. posting dumb dumb giffies or like you know uh, we've got a couple of our people are organizing a happy hour in new york because one of our writers is traveling from la to new york right now oh yeah yeah so that that kind of stuff happens for us too yeah. So, um, so we, we, we find that to be pretty critical and for, for teams over, you know, three or four, I think even, um, having, having something like that, some method of communication like that internal, um, is, is really important for culture. And, and for, you know, I would say within my team, I get maybe one to two emails a week. So we've Mm -hmm. drastically cut down on email by, you know, dealing with most of the things we need to deal with over Slack. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, it's a huge time saver for everybody. We found that Slack is really good for conversation, but it's pretty terrible for like assigning to do's because things disappear up the stream so quickly. Sure. And I think that, I mean, that's another good point is good project management Mm -hmm. is, um, when you have a team that you're trying to manage, especially, you know, if you think about a piece of litigation and you've got four lawyers working on it and nobody's in the same room. Um, I, you know, I, I love, we love Trello, which is a project management, um, uh, site that, uh, allows you to sort of create cards of tasks and you can, you can organize it however you want, but we do it in sort of the traditional agile method where you start it with, you know, there's a to do column, a doing a waiting and a done, and you can assign cards to different people. People. So you take a piece of litigation, you create the cards for the, the type of research that needs to happen, the pleadings that need to be drawn up, the client communications, the court dates, you assign them to people, and then you can see where those people are on on those tasks. So are they doing it right now? Great. I don't have to harass them to do it. Um, is it done? Fantastic. I can just go on here and see that that research is done and the memo is available to me. Um, so I think project management tools can be extremely useful for 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 teams of lawyers working together. Which I, I guess the, the larger point is, you know, think about your systems and think about how you do these things. You know, we've we've finally sort of settled into a, a set of tools that work for us, and but it's taken us a while to get there, and I'm sure the same is true for you. I mean, Slack didn't exist two years ago, so yeah. none of us were using it then, and I forgot how we did it. 
but <laughs> yeah and i think there's so much trial and error there that's true but i think also talking to people who have done it um <coughs> um excuse me who have who have done it already and have already tried a lot of the tools you know you can you can learn from their mistakes pretty easily so it sounds like you think uh using distributed or virtual practices is sort of the way of the future. It's the way firms uh, that are trying to innovate and take advantage of uh, better efficiencies are doing things and should do things. I think it will be a continuing growing trend because, um, you know, fundamentally lawyers don't have to be as expensive as they are. And part of the reason we're so expensive is because we're really bad at running businesses. <laughs> um, right. So we have, we have really poor operations generally, and, and we make poor decisions about, about staffing and, and overhead and that sort of thing. Um, and I think the mindset is changing on the level of overhead that law firms need to, to provide good client service. So as, as that concept erodes and, clients are getting comfortable with different models and are appreciating the fact that they're paying a lot less because of the low overhead model. Um, I think that that model is going to continue to grow. I don't think it's going to, I think it's going to take some work away from brick and mortar, but I think, you know, it's not going to, brick and mortar is not going away. I just think, you know, if I were starting a law firm today, um, depending on the client, I mean, always, like, like I said, the consideration always starts with what your clients expect and what's the minimum level of service they will they will be happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the answer is the minimum level of service that particular type of client will be happy with is it coming to a giant law firm with tons of receptionists and staff and people bringing you coffee and that sort of thing, then that's your answer. Um, but it, that's often not the answer anymore. Gotcha. Nicole, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So 
you should check out Ruby, and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.